John Piper once said, one of the great diseases of our day is trifling. The things with which most people spend most of their time are trivial. What makes this a disease is that we were meant to live for magnificent causes. None of us is really content with the trivial pursuits of this world. Our souls will not be satisfied with trifles. Why is there a whole section of the newspaper devoted to sports and almost nothing devoted to the greatest story in the universe, the growth and spread of the church of Jesus Christ? It is madness that insignificant gains should occupy such a central role in our culture compared to the work of God in Christ. Trifling. Occupying ourselves with matters that are unimportant, insignificant, even petty. How about you and I? If our lives over the past six months were videotaped and put on these screens with vivid clarity, what aspects of our lives would be described as being devoted to trifling? Friends, when we consider where our lives have been currently most devoted to and compare it with the precious commodity of our brief time here on earth and then compare that brief time on earth with eternity spent in heaven or hell, more than we would like to admit, all of us have suffered from this soul-shriveling disease trifling. As we closely examine our calendars, our checkbooks, what we read and listen to, what we talk about, what we pray about, what we're doing when we're bored or just burning time. Friends, we come face to face with how much trifling sadly affects us. As we closely examine how much God's word and his gospel pervades the nooks and crannies of our lives, we all must humbly admit that far too often we can find ourselves spending our energy, spending our time, even spending our words on spiritually fruitless matters, matters that are simply trivial. So if Dr. Popper is right, if it is true that one of the great diseases of our day is trifling, starving our souls on pursuits and trivial matters that pale in comparison to the spread of the gospel and the building up of Christ's church, then why on earth do we do it? If we know our time on earth is brief, and it is like James 4 verse 14 says, a mist then why do we preoccupy ourselves with enormous amounts of time spent on trivial pursuits? Why is it that we as Christians sometimes treat things like prayer to our almighty and everlasting Father like a last resort rather than our first resolve? Why is it that we as Christians say we believe in an eternal hell awaits those 
who perish without Christ. But our lack of evangelism and our lack of burden and concern for the lost, it says otherwise. Brothers and sisters, whether it's trivial pursuits, selfish ambitions, or sheer human forgetfulness, we as Christians need to be encouraged and we need to be reminded on important things many people in this room already know. We need to be regularly encouraged on important things such as prayer, being thankful to God, sharing the gospel, praying for others when they proclaim the gospel, praying for God to give us new opportunities to share the gospel in difficult places to people who are hard to reach. And friends, we also need reminders too, don't we? We can be a forgetful people. We need reminders that if we truly follow Jesus in this world, we should expect along the way things like persecution, conflict, and opposition to arise. Friends, the more you and I are bold and clear for King Jesus, if the world hated our king, will he not also hate his servants? The more you and I are bold and clear with the gospel, the more you and I are bold and clear with obedience to King Jesus, friends, we should expect and not be surprised when spiritual warfare and frustrating pushback comes along the way. As we heard briefly in the call to worship, that Jansen read earlier from 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Did you hear the language that Paul teaches Timothy about the nature of gospel ministry? 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Which is precisely why Paul in the very next chapter, in 2 Timothy 3, says, Hey, Timothy, I'm not just telling you what to do. I have shown you what to do. Do you remember my example, Timothy, of how much I have suffered and still follow Jesus? 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 12. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And friends, to that end, we need to be reminded daily and weekly of our purpose as Christians on earth. We don't need to be sleepwalking through the life God gave us. We need to live thoughtfully and intentionally, intentionally when we're around unbelievers. Because we, according to Jesus, have been called the salt of the earth. So how do we combat this pandemic disease of trifling? How do we combat this trifling disease of spending our time on things that actually don't eternally matter. 
How do we as Christians focus our attention back on what Dr. Piper called those magnificent causes? Magnificent causes like the advancement of the gospel and the building up of Christ's church. Well, friends, sometimes the simplest way to get refocused is to go back to the basics. Go back to the basics of what it means to being a praying and evangelistic Christian and a praying and evangelistic local church. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 573. This morning we'll be in a standalone sermon entitled The Praying and Evangelistic Church as we study Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6 together. As you're turning there, let me give you a little backdrop of where we're at. This brief section of instructions comes at the very end of the Apostle Paul's letter to the believers living in Colossae. Paul penned this letter sometime in the early 80s, while imprisoned in Rome. And Colossae was a, lo- was a city located in Asia Minor which is really modern-day Turkey, about 100 miles or so east from Ephesus. Among several letters that Paul would write around the same time period, Colossians is known as one of the four prison letters or prison epistles, the other ones being Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. As Paul does in many of his letters in the New Testament, he lays out the essential doctrines of the Christian faith in the opening verses and chapters of the letter, And then he concludes the second half of the letter with commands, exhortations, and reminders of how to live out the Christian life. Uh, These commands that we read in the letter to the Colossians and in the ones we'll hear this morning, they were applicable to real Christians like you and I a long time ago in Colossae, and they're very much applicable to Christians right now, right here, living in the River Valley. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Please follow with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. Here's the main summary statement of the sermon. I'll repeat it twice, followed by two points that I'll repeat twice as well. Here's your main idea. Through the persistent prayers and salty witness of Christians, God gives opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. Through the persistent prayers and salty witness of Christians, God gives opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. I'm going to elaborate on that point or that main idea with two main points. Point number one, devote yourself to prayer and patiently watch God at work. 
devote yourself to prayer and patiently watch God at work. That's verses two to four. Point number two, watch your walk and watch your words around unbelievers. Watch your walk and watch your words around unbelievers. That's verses five and six. Let's look at that first point together. Devote yourself to prayer and patiently watch God at work. Look at me at verse two. Paul says to the Colossian believers, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Here in verse two and in verse three, Paul brings up one of the basics of living the Christian life. It's one of the first things we learn as followers of Jesus of how to follow Jesus. And what is that particular Christian basic he brings up? It's that spiritual discipline and spiritual delight of praying to the triune God. Prayer. Prayer. So first of all, what is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is communicating to God. Prayer is communicating to God. It's talking to God. It's communing with God. It's expressing one's heart using human words to speak back to God. It's the creature conversing with his or her creator. Uh, For the life of a born-again believer, prayer is the heart cry towards heaven's throne room. Uh, When Christians pray boldly to the throne of grace, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes our prayers. He simultaneously hears them, then he sanctifies them, he purifies them, he refines them, and then he accepts them and offers those prayers back to God as an act of worship from his children. You see, friends, prayer in the life of a Christian is not words hitting a ceiling. Prayers for the life of a Christian is an aroma that our Heavenly Father willfully invites. Oh, friends, prayer is not humming to yourself. It's not a placebo effect of yelling really loud and feeling really better about yourself for the moment. It's real words coming from a real soul to a real God who can be known, who can be trusted, who can be experienced, and whom you and I, if you trust Christ today, know as your heavenly Father. As the children of God, even in our weakest and worst moments, friends, listen, our prayers of lament, our prayers of anger, our prayers for justice, and our prayers of desperation, those prayers are still welcomed by our heavenly Father. The welcome doormat is always out for God's children when they come to their Father's throne. There is never an unwelcome sign for any of God's children when they knock on that door. Jesus was that door for us who opened access to the Father and it will never be closed again from saved sinners like us. You see, all our sin has been paid for at the cross. Our prayers are not an abomination to God anymore like they are to the unregenerate. Our prayers are a pleasing delight to God. 
because our cries are being offered up by faith to him through Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, this is not just me making this stuff up to make it sound encouraging. David saw his prayers as an offering to God. Listen to Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I had a group of pastors come and visit me uh, this past week from Northwest Arkansas. And, you know, you're thinking they're going to go, oh, man, really cool lobby. And they did say it was cool. By the way, we're hip now, you know, whatever. But as they're walking through our office, you know, I'm thinking they're going to look at the painted walls, how nicely organized Grant and Jansen's offices are. The one thing they notice is, man, this place smells good. Yeah, we like candles around here, bro. Our prayers, when offered by faith through Jesus, they are a sweet-smelling aroma to our Heavenly Father. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 13, 15, through him, namely Christ, then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And brothers and sisters, more than any earthly father or mother, grandfather or grandmother, our heavenly father, he knows our grieving. He knows our groaning. He's not intimidated by whatever we give to him. He's the almighty not the problems we send to him. Our problems might be mountains, but we are children of the one who made those mountains. You see, friends, our God gives us 24-7 access to pray to him, and his heart comes from a heart of perfect love. Friends, prayer is not a chore we do to keep a distant God happy with us. No, no, no. Prayer is communion with a very near God who already perfectly loves us. Do you see how that's backwards in our thinking sometimes? Can you see sometimes because of our sin, our folly, and bad teaching, growing up in legalistic households and gospelist churches, that we think we have to like do 10 things before our Father will even put his hand on the doorknob? Friends, there is no doorknob and there is no shut door for the life of a Christian. The door was Christ, the door is open, and we run to the living room. Whether we're dancing before our Father with joy or kicking and screaming on the ground, he's our Father, we are his children, and he calls us to pray to him because he loves us. Friends, sometimes we don't even know what to pray for, do we? We don't know how to pray. We don't even know other, other words. There is a groaning that happens. And yet we're told that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit himself intercedes for groanings too deep for words, and he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27. And friends, if you read throughout the Psalms, if you're like really struggling in your prayer life and don't know where to begin, uh, there's some excellent resources. I recommended it to Donna recently. Uh, Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson, Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Did I get those two right? I recommend books. I can't even remember the author sometimes. But, but, but here's one way to help you now. Read the Psalms. There's 150 of them. And use the prayer language of the inspired Bible and make them your prayers. Friends, it's in those types of prayers we learn how to pray. 
whether that's praise, whether that's adoration, whether that's confession, whether that's thanksgiving. Friends, even Jesus thought it was important to teach his disciples how to pray. A prayer is not intuitive to us, naturally, but when God, by his spirit, gives us the new life, a new love for him, uh, we are told how to pray, and we see a model of that prayer from Jesus. Jesus said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. A prayer is that daily reminder we need him. Prayer is our daily reminder that we need him. Friends, prayer is vital for our faith to grow, and prayer is vital for our faith to survive. A prayerless Christian will shrivel up spiritually. Let me say that again. A prayerless Christian will shrivel up spiritually. And that's why through prayer, God strengthens us. That's why in our weakness, his grace becomes our strength. He encourages us. He takes those groans and laments. And through sometimes an ugly process, but through reading God's word and trusting him, those groans and laments can turn to gratitude and praise. But how often should believers pray? I get that question from new Christians. It's a fine question. You know, does the Bible have a set amount of time that we should pray every day? You know, set my Apple watch. I don't have one, but I'm pretending I do. You know, and I'm going to compute how many times I've prayed today so it reminds me if I've prayed enough. Somewhat like some of you count your steps every day. I've made 10,000 steps today, honey. You want a gold medal? But sometimes we do that with our prayers, right? Did I make my 10 minutes of prayer quota today? Well, friends, Paul and none of the writers in the New Testament talk like that. They don't say tally in a notebook or put on your Apple Watch and count how many minutes you pray today to quantify how godly you are. So what does Paul say? Look there in verse 2. He speaks of persistent praying. Continue steadfastly in prayer. What does it mean to be steadfast in prayer? Your English translations might say devote yourselves to prayer or be devoted to prayer. Uh, the word here is in the present active imperative, which means it's an action we must give ourselves to continually. It's a command to obey, which means that prayer should characterize the pattern of our lives as followers of Jesus. And friends, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Jesus himself prayed, and he prayed often. Jesus taught on prayer. Jesus, by his own example, shows that the incarnate Son of God depended on his heavenly Father, and he never sinned one time. If the sinless Son of God spent so much time in prayer, what should that suggest of us? Here's a few examples you can think about later. Mark 1.35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 5.16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, verse 12, in these days he went out on the mountain to pray, 
And all the, all the night he continued in prayer to God. Friends, Jesus spent much time in prayer, so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is also teaching believers, like us, that we should too. That word there, those two Greek words there, continue steadfastly. It's kind of doubling, am, ammoing, if you will, the intensity and persistence that we should give to our prayers. It literally means to be strong and persevere towards something, to be courageously persistent. And here's just basically an easy way to remember what he's saying. Paul's saying this, keep praying. Don't forget to pray. Don't stop praying. Pray, 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 and persevere in your praying. It's like teaching a child. They should brush their teeth each morning and each night. Like teaching an athlete to push themselves to finish the drill. Like a weightlifter being exhorted to push themselves another rep on the bench press or the squat rack. Like reminding someone to take deep breaths in and out when they're nervous at the doctor's office. Paul is saying this about prayer. Stay devoted. Stay focused. Stay disciplined. Remain or continue steadfastly in prayer. Why does Paul emphasize this to the Colossians? Why does he feel the need to implore and exhort and push them towards that type of prayer life? Well, friends, it's pretty easy to conclude, right? Christians living in the first century are not all that different than Christians living in the 21st century. Just like the Colossian believers we too can get easily distracted and unfocused on what God has called us to do. We can get consumed or overwhelmed with sad or bad news and grow in despair. We can become self-reliant. If our sinful nature were left all to itself, we are godlike in how we think of ourselves. Apart from God reminding us of our utter need for him, we rely upon our own understanding in our own wisdom, rather than his. And friends, we also get fiercely tempted to sin too, right? What did Jesus say about when you're being tempted? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Uh, remain and be watchful and pray, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus said. Friends, we get tempted all the time to pursue our lives with trivial pursuits. And it's through prayer that we're reminded of our eternal purpose on earth. Now, friends, that means that prayer is not something we do like get a driver's license, put it in our wallets and take it out for special occasions or only when we're required to. No, prayer is more like drinking water for our body's sustenance. It's like breathing throughout the day. Without water, without oxygen for very long, we begin to shrivel up, and the consequences could be fatal. Now, brothers and sisters, no matter whatever circumstances you're in today, this is our ever-present responsibility and need. No matter if you're loving life or running strong, or you're crawling through life and walking with a limp, remain steadfast in prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And if you're feeling spiritually dry, 
and you're going, get it, got it, Pastor Blake, you've kind of rounded the base multiple times with this. What do I do if I am barren right now, spiritually, and don't feel like praying? That's an honest confession, and I would rather have honesty than hypocrisy. So let me give you three practical ideas here. Number one, ask God to give you a hunger and thirst to pray. Ask God to give you a hunger and thirst to pray. Maybe something like this. Father, I don't feel like praying, but I know I need you. I don't always remember to pray to you as I should, so would you convict me by your spirit and compel me to pray when I'm forgetful or self-reliant? Friends, resist every impulse to sin. Obey every impulse to pray. Resist every impulse to sin and obey every impulse to pray. Ask God to give you a hunger and thirst to pray. Practical advice number two, pray with other believers. Pray with other believers. If you're married to a Christian, spouses should regularly pray together. Husbands, this is where you look up, and I'm looking at myself. I had to pin these words myself. My wife is sitting there. She's an accountability partner. King Jesus sees it all. Husbands should take the initiative as the head of their families to pray for their wives and with their wives and children if they still have them in the home or have them at all. Because husbands and wives are yoked together as one flesh, prayer is one way God strengthens and guides and protects a marriage from falling apart. You know, you've heard the cheesy cliche, but I think it's biblically true. Couples who pray together, by God's grace, will stay together. And if you're a member of CCBC, use our weekly gatherings as opportunities to pray with one another. When you come to church on Sundays, find a brother or sister in Christ before or after our gathering and say something like this. Can you pray for me? And the other believer should say something to the effect of this. How specifically can I pray for you? Once you tell them specifically how to pray for them or you, then I would encourage you to pray right there on the spot. Now, if it's a crowd and it's a pretty weighty confession or prayer request, I would encourage you to go to the back. And if the bag doesn't have any room or space, use the church offices. We got plenty of room. Other places you can go. Go out to the parking lot. Use the premises God gave us for this to be one massive prayer gathering all the time. Friends, make it a priority throughout the week to call a brother and sister and pray over the phone. Pray together through whatever ways that God gives us. Do it on Sunday mornings. Join us in corporate prayer. Come back on Sunday nights for corporate prayer. Friends, we are his people, and we need his help together. Pray with other believers. And number three, start and end your daily Bible readings with prayer. Start and end your daily Bible readings with prayer. Simple word of advice. Before you open your Bible, open your mouth to God in prayer. Before you open your Bible, open your mouth to God in prayer. Ask God to give you an appetite for his word. Ask him to show you wonderful things 
that you've glossed over for countless weeks and months and years and to show you beautiful, magnificent, convicting, encouraging, and insightful things. Friends, this is a treasure chest. And we need our Heavenly Father to open up that really heavy top to show us the treasures that are sitting right there. Friends, and when you come across something that's convicting, confess to the Lord right there in the middle of your Bible reading. When you see something glorious and wonderful, praise God in your Bible reading. And when you see something you need to resolve to do, ask God for his help to obey what you have read. Start and end your Bible readings with prayer. Friends, this is something that was not just for a few neat churches in the New Testament. You know, a few healthy churches. This was the norm for Christians in the first century. Here's a few examples. Just hear them afresh again. Acts 1, verse 14, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts 2, 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And friends, when the church was blowing off the hinges numerically, it was growing leaps and bounds. The early church had to have a division of labor established between the apostles and what we would call maybe the first deacons. They had to kind of divide up priorities so the church's mission could go forward. Did you notice what the apostles said, which really overlaps to what pastors do today? Acts 6, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And friends, the, whole, the New Testament has tons of exhortations about staying focused in prayer. You, you know these, Romans 12, 12, rejo- rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. A skeptic several years ago, he was a professing believer. I'm not really sure he was. He sounded a whole lot more hard-hearted and skeptical than a weak brother. I'm not really sure. Maybe heaven will reveal it one day. I know it will. He grew up in a passive home (coughs) with a professing Christian mom and dad that were super passive. And he got really angry at me one time because I was going to ask, can I pray for you? And he he didn't really want me to. He said, I don't want you to pray with me. I saw this my whole upbringing. Prayer is just a cop-out for laziness in your life. It's a cop-out for inaction. Uh, Do nothing. You just want handouts in life, never taking responsibility for yourself. Well, as I explored further and I understood, well, tell me more about your family. (laughs) My goodness, I, I think I agree with a lot of your concerns and anger because I'm not really sure your mom and dad were Christians. They seem to be disobeying Jesus in a whole lot of ways that I can see how prayer and the need for it could turn you off. Friends, it's true that people can use religious lingo like pray to cover up disobedience in other areas of their life. Like I'm constantly looking for a sign from God's will when his word is abundantly clear, and use that kind of lingo to cover up other areas of sin in their life. But even so, is prayer just a cop-out for Christians to do nothing? Is prayer this overly passive, let go and let God, 
that negates responsibility to work, to do, to act, or to pursue other clear commands of Scripture? Well, not at all. John Bunyan, I think, nails it. I mean, he nails it about this seemingly contradiction in some skeptics' minds about prayer and action. Listen to what he says. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Let me say that again. It's just good. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. J.C. Ryle likewise exhorts us, let us not talk only, but act. Let us not act only, but pray. And Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He says, continue steadfastly, but then he says there's a certain alertness and a certain aroma that our prayers are to have. Did you notice there in verse 2? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Recently, on my staycation, I got up in my first deer stand. Marinate in this moment, people. Just imagine in your mind what you're seeing. I had no camo, by the way. Another eyesore, I guess. There I am, 20 to 30 feet in the air. First of all, I'm scared of heights. There's that. And I'm being initiated into the Arkansas woods looking for Bambi, or maybe Bambi's daddy. Now here's the uh, punchline. I didn't see a deer. Now that might have been because I was too loud, I was told. (laughs) Preacher mistake. You don't do that on the deer stand. But I will tell you one thing I was. I was alert. I had my head on a swivel, as our football coach used to say. I'm looking for that deer. Every little noise. Is that it? No, it's a squirrel. Okay, okay. Everything. I am on high alert. Could that be a deer? Could that be a five-pointer? Could that be a nine-pointer? Don't even know if that's possible, but I'm looking for it. The idea here is I was being watchful. Staying alert, keeping alert, not going to sleep. So what are we to be alert and vigilant about in prayer? Friends, among many things, we are to be alert watching God at work through our prayers. Did you catch that? Why would Paul see the need to tell them, stay in prayer and stay alert? It's like someone who takes an arrow and shoots it and then just turns and walks the other direction. That could be fatal to someone's life, or you're not trying to hit a target, but if you're going to shoot an arrow, see where it lands. Friends, that's what our prayer life should be like. We should not make requests to God and not look for God to work. They're an act of worship to him. He accepts them. He hears them. He refines them. Friends, we should be looking. And watching, we should be staying on high alert. Friends, when we shoot those hours of those arrows of prayer to God, friends, we should see where those arrows fall. I had a friend years ago, dead serious, he did this while the pastor was preaching, and he did this throughout his normal Christian life. He had a laptop, 
and an Excel spreadsheet, and he would document all his prayers. No joke. I've seen it. He flipped it to me. He would put when he prayed, what he prayed, and then he would document, timestamp it on when God answered it. Now, friends, that might be too type A and too DC for some of us, but I can tell you what he was doing. He was doing a lot more than what we probably do. He was being watchful. I'm going to keep paying attention to how God is working through my prayers. Friends, whatever you have to do to be encouraged to keep those binoculars on, stay in that deer stand and stay on high alert and watch God at work. But then he says there's an aroma our prayers should take. Did you notice they are being watchful in it with thanksgiving? Uh, For Christians, it's perfectly fine to celebrate that fourth Thursday of every November of every year, Thanksgiving holidays. It's perfectly fine to do that. It's an appropriate thing to do. But friends, according to the New Testament, Thanksgiving is not just one day out of a calendar year that we set apart to be thankful for the ambiguous thankful. It's, It's to be the aroma of our life. Scripture tells us to be thankful in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. Friends, you might be asking, well, then how can I be thankful if life is not going the way I want? If I'm seeing prayers seemingly go unanswered? Well, friend, you might need to sit down with someone to help you think through those hard questions. They can pray with you and remind you of God's faithfulness to you in the past to encourage you. But I think Paul models for us, not just here, but through the whole letter of what we can be thankful for even when it's hard. So turn back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning of this letter. If you're someone who has a hard time being thankful to God or having a hard time to recount what to be thankful for, I think Paul gives us a good example of how it is laced all throughout Colossians. Look at me in Colossians 1, verses 3 to 6. Notice what he says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And then look down at verse 12. You'll see the second instance of thankfulness or gratitude. He says there in this kind of participle phrase here, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Right there in chapter one, guys. He's being thankful to God for the faith, the love, and the hope that these believers have because the gospel came to them and saved them. Friends, no matter where we're at in life, whether ministry is fruitful or it seems like no one's listening and no one's changing, we can always be thankful for any Christians we've ever met and thank God he saved them. You can look to the Christian next to you. Thank God. Thank you, Lord, for saving Casey. Thank you for saving Jansa. You can thank God because he gave them the new birth, faith, love, and hope. And friends, Colossians 1.12 tells us we have an inheritance. Thank you, God, that our salvation is secure. 
Thank you, God, that if everything is taken from me in this life, there's an inheritance waiting in heaven that no one can take from me. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a wonderful hope and a wonderful future. Turn over to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Look at verses 6 to 7. We've seen two instances of gratitude. We're going to see the third. Colossians 2, 6 to 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Friends, as Christians, every day God gives us on earth, we can thank God for saving us from his wrath and saving us by his grace. Friends, one of the ways you know you're growing as a Christian is that you're more thankful today than you used to be years ago. That's what he says, walk in him, abounding in thanksgiving. That means the closer we get to heaven, the more thankful to God we are. Amen? I have met so many saints, dear saints, who've already, some of them have already gone on to be with the Lord. They say when they get towards the, quote, end of their life, whatever age that is, would you go back and relive? And almost every time, those who have walked with Jesus will say, no way. The best is still yet to come. You know where that's coming from? They're growing in gratitude. Each day they're being made more like Jesus. Heaven is going to be one of the most resounding places of gratitude. Thankfulness all around. No complaining, no grumbling, no unappeasable customers, family members, church members, or your own soul. It's always gratitude. We will be perfectly whole, perfectly sanctified, and always thankful. Look with me at Colossians 3. Colossians 3. He's going to mention this three times in one flow of thought. Colossians 3. Look with me starting in verse 15. Colossians 3, 15 to 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, the more we experience the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, the more we seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit with other believers, the more we will have reasons to give thanks. Friends, the more we read and listen to and absorb and apply and sing God's word, the more we will see the fruit of a thankful heart resounding back to God. You see, when you meet unbelievers, especially around Thanksgiving, or even just maybe people you work with, they'll say stuff like this, I'm thankful. I just want to encourage you to take advantage of that sentence. Really? Thankful to who? And for an unbeliever, either God's given them enough light, they know there's a God, and they'll say, well, I thank you for the man upstairs. I thank you for, you know, kind of this ambiguous God. Or some of the more staunch atheists and skeptics will say, well, I'm, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for good health. I'm, I'm thankful for X, Y, and Z. But it's all ambiguous. For the Christian, our gratitude goes to God from whom all 
blessings flow. Friends, thanksgiving is the aroma in our prayer life that pleases God. Complaining, grumbling, and an unappeasable attitude is a stench in the nostrils of God. Friends, humble people are thankful people. Humble people are thankful people. Prideful people are often difficult and impossible to appease. But friends, those who have been forgiven much have much to be thankful for. Uh, friends, I often get stopped at the door as you're heading out, and I think out of love, people ask me, how was your week, Pastor? Jackson kind of knows. I'm kind of on repeat with this one. When you ask me, how was your week? There are some weeks where I will tell you, that's a loaded question, brother. And when I don't follow through on what I'm actually telling you, I'll say something like this. I'm thankful to be alive. I'm thankful to be saved. I'm thankful that God is sovereign. And I'm thankful that Jesus is on the throne and I'm not. Friends, if you're ever having one of those weeks or those days or those years where you're going, that's a loaded question. We can be thankful for those other things. But in the midst of our prayers, in the midst of Paul's exhortation to the Colossians, he also wanted them to pray for him. Look at verses 3 to 4. Colossians 4, 3 to 4. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Friends, remember the context. Paul's not writing from a seminary or some desk job somewhere. He's writing from prison. It literally says right there, on account of which I am in prison. Friends, he was in prison, and he was unashamed of the gospel. That, that takes supernatural ability to be imprisoned against your will and yet be unashamed for the gospel for a sovereign God who put him through the hands of evil men in that prison. Like we've seen several times in the New Testament, prison was never a hindrance for Paul's ministry. It was actually an opportunity that kind of sprung him forward in ways that he could have never imagined. Friends, other prisoners heard the gospel. When Paul, he's like, you know, hey, what are you in for? You know, theft, murder. What are you in for? Preaching the gospel. Oh, boy. You know, here goes Paul. Yeah, I lost my church, but now you're my new congregation. Have a seat. Friends, Paul even said, you know, his boldness led other people to be bold too. You ever remember that Philippians text we looked at years ago? Philippians 1, 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Friends, Paul was in prison, and he remained bold for Jesus. And Paul was asking the Colossian believers, did you notice what he prayed for? He prayed that the gospel would continue to advance, even while he was still in prison. Friends, I think we can learn a lot from Paul's example just right there in verses 3 and 4. There's a couple of things to think about. Number one, 
it requires humility to ask others to pray for you. It requires humility to ask others to pray for you. Notice what Paul said, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul was not exempt from needing prayer. Paul was weak and pitiful and prone to sin and prone to wander just like we are. And he said, please, pray for us. And notice the us there is not Paul like three persons. Paul's one dude. He's got Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1. He's got potentially Tychicus, chapter 4, verse 7, Onesimus, chapter 4, verse 9, Aristarchus in Mark, chapter 4, verse 10, and several others in chapter 4. Paul didn't just say, hey, you Christians, y'all need to keep on praying so I can go play golf. No, he said also, pray for me. Pray for those spiritual leaders with me who are ministering to the word in Colossae and in Rome. Brothers and sisters, how often do you do that? How often do you ask others to pray for you? Do you get specific in those prayers? Do you actually ask, I need your prayers because of X, Y, and Z? Friends, allow others to be used of God in praying for you. It's a joy. It is a privilege for others to struggle and persevere in prayer on behalf of other believers. That's why if you go back and listen to most of my sermons, one application, I probably say, if not every sermon, every other sermon, to pray for those who minister the word, pray for those who've been a blessing to you, pray for your other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a common application I give in almost every sermon because we all need prayer. Secondly, notice Paul shows the need to pray for God to open doors for the gospel to go forward. Paul shows the need to pray for God to open doors for the gospel to go forward. That word door there, that imagery, is just another way of saying God giving new opportunities, new paths for the gospel to go forward, new churches to be planted, more sinners to be saved. There's other passages in the New Testament that talk about a door God opens. Other ones are like Acts 14, 27. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Members of CCBC, we should be praying for the persecuted church around the world. We should be praying for the persecuted church around the world. I'll send you an article, maybe even this week, in preparing for our missions training workshop of the top 10 most hostile countries to live if you're a Christian. The most vehemently persecuted Christians in the world. Use that as a prayer guide. Slip it in your Bible and pray for other believers who live in certain situations, much like Paul did. Uh, friends, we should be praying here at CCBC that God would give us more open doors for the gospel. Open doors in your job, open doors here in Chaffee Crossing. Friends, even open doors with neighbors who live around here. Or be praying that God would give us more opportunities to meet people who don't know Jesus. Thirdly, Paul prays that his prayers... I'm sorry, Paul shows that his prayers were not over trivial matters, but over eternally magnificent causes. His prayers were not over trivial matters, but over magnificent causes. Friends, Paul was in prison. Think about all the things he could have prayed for. Pray that God would get me out of here. I mean, he did it with Peter. God sent an angel, opens up prison doors, and Peter walks scot-free. 
He could have asked for that, and he would have been fine to do that. He doesn't pray for an easier ministry. He doesn't pray for self-preservation. <coughs> Excuse me. He's praying that the gospel would go forward. Friends, he was concerned that people were perishing and going to hell without Christ. He was concerned that people, if they died that night, would be separated from the love of God forever. <coughs> Here at CCBC, that should be our same concern. Friends, how often this past week have you prayed for an unbeliever to be saved? How much has it bothered you that loved ones don't know the Lord? How much does it bother you that even loved ones here in Fort Smith may not know the Lord? Friends, that's the kind of concern we should have, to pray for those open doors. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to know if you're here today, it's probably because someone's been praying for you. Someone has prayed for your salvation. Someone is trying to teach you the scriptures and about Jesus. And kids, your parents want that for you. They want you to know the Lord. They bring you to church preeminently for that reason, that you would know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So why should you follow Jesus? I mean, Paul ended up in prison. I'm not sure many of us want to sign up for that. We should follow Jesus because in following Jesus, he answers life's most difficult question. How can a heinous, guilty sinner be reconciled to a holy and righteous God? No college degree can answer that question. No amount of financial success can answer that question. No amount of good health can answer that question. How can a sinner be reconciled to a holy God? And only Jesus can answer that question. The only way we can be reconciled to a holy God is a perfect and precious sacrifice has to be offered in the place of sinners who deserve punishment. Friends, Jesus not only offered his prayers as a sacrifice to his heavenly father, he offered up his life. His prayers were depicting his uttermost trust in his heavenly father and his act of obedience in the strength of the spirit was in love for sinners like you and I. Friends, he went to the cross, the sinless one for sinners like us. And he even praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And the Father crushed his own son to make sinners like us sons and daughters of his. Friends, he died on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating our greatest enemy, which is death. If you turn from your sins and trust in him, today can be the first prayer you offer to God, and he hears you as his beloved children. That is the good news. Friends, that's what Paul lived for. <clears throat> in Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Friends, what would other believers say that you most prioritize in your life? What would other members of this local church say is most precious to you? Well, our hope 
is that somewhere along the way, people would say persistent prayer would be on the top of the list. A watchfulness and gratitude to God in our prayer life. A desire to see other people saved and prayers for God to open more doors for the gospel. Friends, that should be what should be at the top of the list of things that characterize a Christian who's not pursuing trivial matters, but magnificent ones. But how about unbelievers? This is where it gets a little more convicting. How would unbelievers in your life and in my life, what would they say makes our lives attractively distinct from theirs? Which leads to our second and final point. Point number two, watch your walk and watch your words around unbelievers. Paul says in verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Who are outsiders that Paul refers to here? They're unbelievers. The word means those outside the church, those without faith in Christ. So apart from the proclamation of the gospel on the mission field, which we'll hear a lot about next week's mission workshop training, or apart from the gospel being proclaimed from the pulpit, like we hear here at CCBC, apart from the gospel being proclaimed through YouTube podcasts, gospel tracts, books, and dozens of other means, how does God advance his gospel? How does God grow and expand his church throughout a community. Well, friends, the gospel advances not only through proclaiming it and speaking it, the gospel also advances through Christians living intentionally thoughtful lives among unbelievers who are in our life. That's where the word walk there in the Greek is peripateo. It means to live to conduct yourself, or really your overall behavior in life. In other words, Christians are a witness in two distinct ways for Jesus. Two distinct but related, through our lips and the way we live. Friends, faith can only come not by how I cut my grass, but by the hearing of the word of Christ, Hebrews 10, 17. No one's ever going to get saved by how well you can wash a car. We must open our mouths and pray that God would open hearts and that we would be clear in our gospel proclamation. That's verse 4. Paul said, pray for me that I may make it clear. We want sermons to be clear. We want our evangelism to be clear. We want to be ultra clear and no confusion about who Jesus is and what he demands of us as Lord. But God also demonstrates his love and power through transformed lives of Christians living and working among unbelievers. Friends, this is where the Amish get it wrong. This is where people who are separatistic get it wrong. Yes, we are not of the world, but we're not called to literally vacate the world. We are sent into this world. And so Paul, knowing this, is not telling Christians to go live in some commune on the back of some mountain. If you live in a mountain, that's not an offense to you. Thank you for being here today. 
He says, while you are living, while you are walking, while you are working, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul knows that we are all so tempted to walk past opportunities for the gospel every single day. He says, use it well. Use it wisely. So friends, if you meet an unbeliever on a plane, train, bus, the mall, or in a situation where you probably won't see this unbeliever again, friend, pray that God would give you a gospel conversation with them in that moment. Redeem the time. Use it like money. Don't make excuses. God, I'm a coward. Make me bold. I can sometimes be too aggressive. Make me gentle. Lord, I want to love this person as a soul. Would you give me the opportunity to tell them about Jesus? So friends, those are when you meet unbelievers that you probably won't ever see again. And that happens all the time. But for the vast majority of our life, if you're living with an unbeliever, you work with an unbeliever, you live among unbelievers, and you see them on a regular basis, friends, living a godly life in front of them is bearing witness to the gospel we celebrate. That's why I look at there in verse 6. Paul moves from a Christian's lifestyle to their words. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Salt here takes on a variety of connotations. It's a preservative component, also a flavoring one as well. And that's why he explains by what he means of have, having salty speech, by calling it gracious speech. Speech that is filled with words that are pleasing to God's ears. Speech that is filled with words that show God's grace has affected your hearts. What is gracious speech? Most of us would say it's being polite. But that's actually not what the text says. The Greek word there is charis, where we get our word grace or unmerited favor. In other words, the grace we have received through Jesus Christ, the power of God by his spirit, by what Jesus has done for us, our speech and our hearts being transformed by that message is going to affect how we speak. So in other words, how we speak is to accurately represent something of Jesus. We don't want to speak in any way that confuses people what Jesus is like. We want to speak in a way that reveals and represents what Jesus is like. So let me give you a four quick things. This is useful because our speech, as James 3 we learned a while back, uh, can be set on fire by hell. Uh, James is certainly not as uh, soft on that topic. But what is gracious speech according to all of Scripture, I'm going to mention four things that characterize gracious speech, speech that's been transformed by God's grace. Number one, truthful speech. Truthful speech. Not lies, not slander, not gossip, or the spreading of false information, or bearing false testimony. This is speech that is concerned about objectable, or I'm sorry, objective and indisputable facts, not hearsay, or making hasty false assumptions. 
speech that is truth, truthful speech. Number two, edifying or encouraging speech. Edifying or encouraging speech. Not harsh, not harmful, not hateful, not abusive. Speech that blesses another person, strengthens their faith, and encourages them in their walks with Christ. Number three, persuasive speech. Persuasive speech. Speech that invites a listener, whether through exciting their interest or grabbing their attention and their concern. But friends, this is not flattery. This is where Christians get this wrong. (laughs) This is not flattery. This is not manipulative speech. This is not speech that merely tickles the ears with ulterior motives. It's persuasive, but not deceptive. It's clear and winsome, not unclear and ambiguous. And then fourthly, biblical speech. Biblical speech, speech that Scripture would commend either by clear instruction or by the example Jesus has set for us. Friends, we want to we represent Jesus well with gracious speech. Then let's just read how Jesus talked. How did he talk to the hurt and the helpless? How did he talk to the stubborn and ignorant? How did he talk to the hypocrites and the rebellious? Friends, when we imitate our Lord with speech like his, we are having gracious speech to the hearers. Friends, in all these ways, Scripture is very clear. We should put away all speech that would be crude, corrupt, filthy talk, worldly or otherwise fleshly. Friends, we should put away all speech that would confuse unbelievers about what Jesus is really like. Brothers and sisters, Paul again exhorts us, redeem the time well when you're with unbelievers. What's one way we can do that? Uh, here at the welcome desk, we have these little evangelistic bookmarks. Gives you scriptures to think about. And people's names you can put on there that you're praying for that God would save. Take one as you leave today. Put it in your Bible as people by name to be praying for and for God to open doors in the coming days. Uh, Richard Chin makes this wonderful and very easy application about this kind of everyday evangelism. Notice what he says. Don't sleepwalk through your relationships, but be intentional in both your prayers and in the ways you spend time with those who don't know Jesus as Lord. Think about the outsiders you're likely to meet. Think about family or friends or at the university or school or work colleagues or parents on the sideline at sporting events. Some of my richest gospel conversations have been on the sideline at soccer matches or even at the barbershop. You can be praying for Erica, who cuts my hair. You can see it was recently done. She says, you keep inviting me to church, and I know I ought to come. I'm like, yeah, you live in Barling, Erica. I'm not going to let you off the hook. And uh, she's going to come eventually. I trust the Lord. Uh, But be praying for Erica and her boyfriend, Eric. I'm not confident they know the Lord, but pray that they come one day. Friends, let's conclude. How does the the gospel go forward? How does the church spread in the River Valley and around the world? What does watching our walk and watching our words around unbelievers have to do with evangelism? What do you do if you live with an unbeliever and it doesn't seem they're ever desirous of Christ? 
Charles Spurgeon once recounted a story to encourage Christians to live salty, even if those unbelievers live with you. I conclude with this moving story. A husband who was a depraved man of the world had a wife who for many years bore with his ridicule and unkindness, praying for him day and night, though no change ever came over him except that he grew even bolder in sin. One night, being at a drunken feast with a number of his cursing companions, he boasted that his wife would do anything he wished. She was as submissive as a lamb. Now, he said, she has gone to bed hours ago, but if I take you all to my house at once, she will get up and entertain you and make no complaint. Not she, they said. And the matter ended in a bet. And away they went. It was in the small hours of the night, but in a few minutes she was up and remarked that she was glad that she had two chickens ready. And if they would wait a little, she would soon have a supper spread for them. They waited and before long, at the late hour, the table was spread, and she took her place at it as if it was quite an ordinary matter, acting the part of hostess with cheerfulness. One of the company, touched in his better feelings, exclaimed, Madam, we ought to apologize to you for intruding you in this way and at such an hour. I am at a loss to understand how it is to re you receive us so cheerfully. For being a religious person, you cannot approve of our conduct. Her reply was, I and my husband were both formally unconverted. But by the grace of God, I am now a believer in the Lord Jesus. I have prayed daily for my husband, and I have done all I can to bring him to a better mind. But as I see no change in him, I fear he will be lost forever. And I have made up my mind to make him as happy as I can while he is here. They went away. And her husband said, do you really think I shall be unhappy forever? I fear so, she said. I would to God you would repent and seek forgiveness. That night, patience accomplished her desire. He was soon found with her on the way to heaven. Through the persistent prayers and salty witness of Christians, God gives opportunities for the advancement of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray that as the salt of the earth, we would be even more salty in our speech. Lord, through boldness and praying for one another and being continually steadfast in prayer, Lord, use us individually in other people's lives and collectively as your church, to be a salty witness. Lord, we want to be accurately representing what Jesus is like. Lord, show us ways in our life where we have lost that saltiness. And Lord, we pray that even in the coming years, we will look back on answers to prayer as we've remained watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.